Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Bone Wars, uh, which I, I guess I should be very upfront and say, again... Not an actual war. Uh, we do have some stones chucked about at one point, but that's about as close as it gets. No, the, the Bone Wars, uh, they were a long, drawn-out rivalry, actually, between two paleontologists uh, as they fought for scientific supremacy in the late 19th century. It's a bloody great story. Uh, these two blokes used every trick in the book to bring down uh, you know, their rival, the theft, sabotage, bribery, slander, you name it, they, these blokes did it. Many of uh, many of today's most famous and beloved dinosaurs were actually discovered by these two blokes, Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope. Uh, so there's no doubting their legacy and, and the impact they had on the field of paleontology. Uh, but the funniest and the most entertaining parts of this story, uh, you know, isn't their scientific achievements. It's the near lifelong vendettas that these two blokes brought against each other. Fossil hunting is a very serious business, as you'll discover. And, uh, and the bitter rivalry between these two helped to push the science into the public consciousness. They were so petty and so obsessed without doing the other that I'm sure if they heard this podcast today, Cope would be furious that I mentioned Marsh's name before his, and, and Marsh would see that as a, as a victory here. Uh, this story, is it, it's bloody hilarious, so uh, so let's get to it here. Uh, uh, thanks go to alert listener Shane Wong, who sent in the Bone Wars as a topic suggestion. I actually remember reading about the Bone Wars, I remember reading about Cope and Marsh in Bill Bryson's excellent A Short History of Nearly Everything. Um, but it was great to go back, uh, uh, go a bit deeper on the bone walls after this suggestion. So good on you, Shane. Thanks very much, mate, for getting in touch. Anyway, let's uh, let's get stuck in. Let's learn about these two blokes and, and how their intense hatred of one another uh, propelled the science of paleontology forward. So uh, so let's meet our cast of characters here. We're going all the way. Well, actually, hang on. Wait. To, uh, uh, to be fair, I'm actually, hang on. I'm going to toss a coin to decide who gets to, uh, to go first to keep things on an even keel here. Hang on one second. I'm just going to get a coin here. All right, here we go. Uh, all right, so we'll say we'll say uh, heads, it's cope, and tails, it's marsh. All right, heads, it's cope. Cope gets to go first. Very, very fair way to have dealt with that one, I think. All right, so we're going all the way back, all the way back now to 1840, where on the 28th of July in Philadelphia, Edward Drinker Cope was born. His middle name was Drinker. Uh, <laughs> he was born to a very wealthy family. His mum, Hannah, died when he was just three, and his dad remarried, uh, so he was raised by his stepmother. And he was very interested in animals and the natural world from a very young age, uh, and his dad, Alfred, sent him off to expensive schools uh, to further his obviously very bright mind. But despite being a brilliant student, he actually had a bit of a wild streak and he got in trouble for, uh, for misbehaviour, having a quick temper. And, and this led him to actually dropping out of school in 1856 at the age of 15 to instead become a farmer. He did, however, continue to say, uh, stay interested in natural history even while he was working as a farmer. Uh, he didn't like farming all that much, to be honest. And, uh, and his rich father helped to pay for private lessons on natural history and all sorts of other things. He even took some uh, some some courses on uh, on comparative anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, and in fact published a couple of scientific papers himself. But in 1863, Cope travelled to Europe to avoid being drafted into the Civil War, with the American Civil War had kicked off by this stage, of course. And so he went around to Europe, he was touring the continent, you know, visiting museums and joining meetings of various scientific societies. And it was in Europe, in Berlin specifically, 
that he first uh, that he first met Marsh, who was studying at the University of Berlin in, uh, in, in and they met in in late eighteen sixty three or early eighteen sixty four. And for Marsh's part, uh, Othniel Charles Marsh, he was born on the 29th of October in 1831 in Lockport uh, in, in, in New York State in the United States uh, into a family of pretty modest means. His dad, Kayla, was a farmer. His mum, his Mary, uh, also died when he was very young. He was only two years old. Big shame there. However, his mum's brother, George Peabody, was extremely wealthy and also extremely generous. Peabody paid for uh, Marsh's education at Yale University and there, Marsh studied uh, geology, mineralogy, and chemistry. Uh, you couldn't really study paleontology. It was uh, very much in its infancy at this stage in history, especially in the United, the, the United States. They didn't really have courses on, on paleontology specifically. But uh, he had a bachelor's, bachelor's degree, then a master's degree from Yale. Despite uh, not publishing too many papers, he was still, uh, by now, obviously, a very well-educated scientist. And again, during the American Civil War in the 1860s, he also travelled to Europe, where paleontology was a much better established discipline. Uh, he spent three or four years in the German Confederation, including, of course, in Berlin, which is where he met Cope again in late 1863 or early 1864. And it's here in Berlin that our story begins properly with these two meeting in the Prussian capital. Now, interestingly and unbelievably, once you've heard the rest of this story here, these two blokes, they seem to get on pretty bloody well to begin with. They seem to get on very well indeed. They stay together for a couple of days. Marsh, you know, bloody showing Cope around Berlin. No worries. Oh, have a look at this, mate. Bloody Brandenburg Gate. Here's the TV tower. Oh, wait, no. You have to wait about 200 years to see the TV tower. But still, here's where it will be, you know, bloody not, not too bad. Look at that. Um, but they did come from opposite ends of many different spectrums here. Marsh was well-educated but hadn't published much, whereas Cope didn't have a formal education but had already written almost 40 scientific papers. And, of course, Marsh came from modest beginnings while Cope had the old uh, silver spoon in the gob from the very outset. And even their, even their personalities were very different. Cope was quick to anger and loved to scrap, whereas uh, Marsh was careful, introverted and quiet. However, they were both very stubborn, they were both intractable, and they were both very distrustful. And uh, despite such a promising beginning to their friendship, it obviously wasn't to last. Um, it's thought that uh, both of them actually looked down on the other. Marsh, uh, you know, had some disdain for Cope because of Cope's informal education, whereas Cope looked down on Marsh because, you know, he didn't have his own money. He wasn't a, a, a proper gentleman scientist. Uh, in any case, they parted amicably enough in Berlin, uh, and eventually both ended up back in the United States. A bit, a bit of toss a coin once again to see who we uh, who we talk about first here. Hang on, so it's uh, we'll say again, it's tails for Marsh, heads for Cope. Let's go. Oh, jeez. Okay, that went halfway across the room. All right, it's tails. So uh, let's do Marsh first this time. After getting back to the States, Marsh actually was appointed as the Professor of Vertebrate Paleontology at Yale University, which made him the very first Professor of Paleontology in the United States. Not a bad achievement for him. And it was then that he persuaded his rich uncle George Peabody to donate $150,000 to Yale so as to establish the uh, the museum that still bears Peabody's name to this very day. There's actually a couple of Peabody museums. There's one at Harvard. There's one at Yale. We're talking about the one at Yale today. Uh, and Marsh also inherited a further $100,000 uh, off his uncle, which he spent chiefly on investigating uh, and excavating fossil beds. This was, you know, how he sort of uh, kicked kick, kick the whole process off and uh, how the bone wars really were, uh, were taken to the next level here. Um, Cope on the other hand, became a professor of zoology at a small Quaker school called Haverford College uh, that his father had donated to extensively. This was definitely a pay-to-win situation because Haverford gave Cope uh, an honorary degree just so he could become a professor. 
Uh, anyway, he also got married. He married a woman named Annie Pym and spent some time travelling uh, around to support his researchers into, nat- uh, into natural history and particularly into fossil hunting. Again, uh, using the old, uh, using Dad's checkbook there, uh, always a good way to get ahead in, situa- in situations like this. Anyway. These two men return to the U.S. securing professorships, uh, and then they get stuck into digging up dinosaur bones. Uh, you know, it, it's it's unsurprising that, given how you know similar their, their stories are, even if they're in different states, different parts of the country, whatever else, uh, their paths obviously going to cross again, given they're in the same industry like this, and. Uh, uh, you know, at this at this stage, their, their relationship was it was amiable enough. They'd even named a couple of species after each other. You know, they were they were, even if they weren't friends, they were at least professional colleagues, and they didn't absolutely hate each other as they, as they as they will grow to uh, before very much longer. And this was uh, one of the reasons that in the in the late eighteen sixties, Cope invited Marsh on a trip to one of Cope's fossil hunting grounds, a marl pit in New Jersey that was chock-a-block with dinosaur bones. Now, this was meant to be a friendly gesture, but I'll tell you what, it ended up being the start. It ended up being the start of a hateful rivalry that would consume these two men for the rest of their lives and would result also in a lot of very determined and very bitter science getting done. Anyway, they visit this this quarry together, and uh, and Cope, you know, Cope's cutting about with Marsh, Marsh, showing them all the fossils and whatnot. Brilliant. Oh, have a look at this one. Anyway... Marsh, very impressed, very impressed indeed by how rich these pits were with uh, with the ancient fossils. So impressed, in fact, that he decided to do something that ended up being the opening salvo in the lifelong vendetta that sprang up between these two. Because before leaving, before leaving the quarry, Marsh pulled aside and had a quiet word with the bloke who was running the quarry. And he bribed him in order to ensure that any new fossils were sent up to Marsh in Yale rather than to cope in Philadelphia. Now, even at the best of times, this could be, you know, rightly considered a dick move. But here, in the height of the USA's gilded age between two wealthy gentlemen scientists, this was a scandalous affront to dignity and to honour. The quarry operators, they started sending bones up to Connecticut instead of to Philly. And of course, Cope realises soon enough that the bones are drying up and he wants to find out, well, what's going on here? He discovers that Marsh, or, you know, he finds out what Marsh has done. And I'll tell you what, mate, he was spewing. He was absolutely, he was spitting chips, he was. And so began one of the most heated and bitter feuds in the history of science as Cope and Marsh began their lifelong campaigns to outdo the other. They attacked each other in publications. They slandered each other to colleagues and continued to undermine the other's fossil hunting efforts. One of the funniest parts of these opening salvos, however, was in 1868, when Cope, again, who is, you know, a prolific writer, he's publishing, uh, publishing uh, documents left, right and centre all over the place in all these journals. And he first reconstructed a skeleton of the Elasmosaurus, which was a type of plesiosaur. And unfortunately for Cope, however, he got it slightly wrong and he put its skull on the end of its tail rather than on the end of its neck. And obviously Marsh absolutely loved this. He had a field day. He tore Cope to shreds in front of anyone who would listen, having made such a rudimentary error. And Cope, who was obviously sick of being ridiculed, actually tried to cover up his mistake by buying every single copy of the publication that he could find and destroying them. But obviously this just drew more attention to his stuff up. So nice one there, old son. I mean, look, poor Cope, you know, it's pretty bloody funny. Imagine finding a bloody giraffe skeleton and putting its head right next to its ass. Come on, mate. Anyway. 
As we move out of the 60s and into the 1870s, it was a very exciting time for paleontology, very, very, you know, new branch of the natural sciences. And it was also an exciting time to be an American scientist. This young country had a huge amount to offer the discipline. As the United States uh, expanded its borders, uh, borders farther and farther west, great deposits of these ancient dinosaur bones, they were unearthed, they were dug up, and, uh, and both Cope and Marsh were amongst the many leading paleontologists that headed out west uh, hunting to hunt down these, uh, uh, these fossils. And, uh, you know, it wasn't also wasn't just we sort of focus on the headline acts, the dinosaur bones. But, you know, there were there were small reptiles and mammals and all the rest of it there. But obviously the dinosaur bones, the big, the hulking great big bones were the ones that made the headlines. And they're, they're, they're going to be the focus of this episode. But there, there were other, you know, there were other animals as well that were discovered and named and, and classified and whatever. But uh, in heading out west. Cope actually was the one with the head start. He had connections in DC and he was able to snag himself a gig with the US Geological Survey. And this gave him unfettered access to the very best fossil sites as, uh, as the USGS was, uh, was you know, happy to have him. Uh, uh, because Cope had this natural talent for writing engaging and interesting reports that made it more likely that people would, you know, actually care about what the USGS was doing. And so as a result, he was put in, in charge of some of these expeditions and basically given the pick of the litter, he'd go off to any of these fossil sites and, uh, and dig them up, write these reports. So Cope, he headed out west with his family. He left them in Denver before heading to Wyoming himself, making for Fort Bridger. Now, we found a few fossils here and there, but after arriving in Fort Bridger, he discovered that the team and the equipment that had been promised by the USGS ha- actually hadn't arrived. Um, so irritated but no less determined, Cope put together his own team with his own money, hiring men and horses and wagons and all the gear that he'd need. And off they all went, hunting for bones, no worries, until Cope discovered, oh, twist ending here, shock horror, that two of the men that he had hired were in fact actually employees of Marsh. Now, the details on this are a little bit hazy. You know, these two blokes seem to have lied out of their asses to both sides here. But Cope was furious to find that he had what he thought were spies in his ranks. Now, these men, they claimed that they'd stopped working for Marsh because he was lazy and hadn't paid him, uh, paid them. But uh, after, you know, Cope turfed them out, they actually went back to Marsh and said, listen here, boss, check this out. We bloody sabotaged Cope's operation. We did. We infiltrated. We spied, right? And we led him away from all the good fossil spots. Now, whether they were spies and saboteurs or just opportunistic liars, the story just goes to show how much tension and hostility there was, even you know between Cope and Marsh, even now the, in, in the early early stages of their careers. And Marsh, for his part, he went out west as well, although he didn't like to spend quite as much time in the field as Cope. He usually, he usually he liked to deputise people. He'd find employ agents to do it for him. And this led to a major stuff up, stuff up, however, because there were men on both sides, uh, you know, doing the dirty accidentally or otherwise. One of Marsh's agents accident- accidentally uh, sent a bunch of fossils to Cope. Uh, no, look, it does look like it was actually an accident because Cope did send, he did the right thing. He sent them back to Marsh like bloody, you know, blathers in Animal Crossing. No, thanks. We've already got these ones here. But this was one of the very last gestures of goodwill between these two men here because Marsh, he was furious. He was furious and the rift between the two paleontologists grew even, grew ever, grew ever wider here um, as, their, as, their, as their rivalry continued to burn hot and bright. And of course, in the grand tradition of half-assed history... It only got worse from here. In 1873, both men abandoned any pretense of gentlemanly conduct with one another and just started going for broke because both were digging up tons and tons of dinosaur bones. There was no shortage of them as, as the US expanded further west. And so the race became less about, uh, about finding the bones at this point because, you know, you just walk around, you trip over them uh, and more about telling everyone about what you'd found. 
So both Marsh and Cope would, after you know a hard day at the diggings, they would quickly send telegrams back to the East Coast reporting what they'd found with uh, you know hastily cobbled together names and descriptions just to be the first. It's like you know in your primary school and you get into a scrap with your mate, it's the first one who gets to the teacher who often you know is the one who is found to be in the right. And so these two blokes are you know are run are, are, are not running back. That would be a very inefficient way to do it. They were sending telegrams back, a much faster way to get the message, the news back to the East Coast. So their discovery would be the first one. And this was a point at which Marsh now pulled ahead, not necessarily in sheer numbers, but rather when it came to scientific accuracy. Marsh put a lot of his finds into a new taxonomic order, and his names for most of the discoveries, they stuck, whereas Cope, who was on the wrong side of scientific history, amongst other things, uh, with his uh, neo-Lamarckist views on evolution, uh, he had most of his attempts to uh, name new species pretty roundly ignored. Now, Cope did his best. He even tried to counter Marsh's uh, taxonomic innovations with a new plan to classify prehistoric animals, but it didn't catch on, and this round went to Marsh. However, the both uh, both of them the, the, the two they both continued to dig fossils out of the American West throughout the early 18th, uh, 1870s. In 1873, Marsh headed out with 13 Yale students while Cope was once again uh, off hunting with the USGS. Uh, Marsh headed into Sioux territory, uh, and so a group of soldiers accompanied him to uh, show a bit of force there. Real nice, good on you fellas. Uh, and while on this trip, uh, Marsh did everything he could to buy off local fossil hunters and collectors. I mentioned before he didn't have much of a taste for fieldwork, and so again he, uh, he he tried to delegate it to his new contacts. Meanwhile, Cope was uh, was less focused on uh, less focused on making connections and and fi- much more much more focused on you know actually collecting as as many fossils uh, himself as possible rather than hiring all these agents. So Cope amassed a staggering number of specimens. But by the uh, the end of 1873, even though he's pulling ahead in sheer numbers, he was just digging way more of them out of the ground than, uh, than Marsh was, Marsh's politicking presented a new problem by the end of the 1870, uh, 1873 season because so many locals were now in the pay of Marsh that Cope found that he was increasingly unwelcome. He was getting boxed out and more in more and more fossil hotspots uh, as all the locals, you know, who were in the pockets of, uh, of Marsh there were shivvying him out and not letting him collect any more specimens. Now, this, plus the fact that he was getting sick of working for the U.S. Geological Survey, meant that uh, that Cope actually quit his position and instead got a gig with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Now, this didn't prove to be a good move for him because it ended up being a bit of it ended up being a bit of a liability because he no longer had free reign over where he went. He now had to go along with the Army Corps uh, on its expeditions. Uh, wherever they chose to go, not whatever he chose to go. Marsh, on the other hand, he could cut about uh, cut about wherever he liked, and this led him to become involved actually in a conflict between the U.S. Army and the, the Native Americans in the in the Dakota Territory. Gold had been discovered in the Black Hills, uh, which ultimately led things years later. It led to things being sort of kicking off between the U.S. and the Sioux. The Great Sioux War isn't really a big part of this episode. There's obviously so much going on there. We're not going to be able to get across all, all of it here. But Marsh was actually involved in the lead up to this uh, this war. Uh, as he wanted access not to the gold fields, but to the fossil finds that had been uh, that had been discovered there in Sioux territory, he even met with Red Cloud, chief of the Sioux, and promised him payment for any fossils, uh, as well as a voice in D.C. And then, in the grand tradition of European settlers everywhere. Uh, was proven to have lied through his teeth about this as he ended up just nicking off with wagon loads of fossils without ever paying a, a single cent to Red Cloud or the Sioux. In fairness, Marsh did live up to the other part of the bargain. He did lobby uh, President Ulysses S. Grant back in D.C. on behalf of the Sioux, uh, but uh, but again, didn't pay, uh, <laughs> didn't pay any money whatsoever, any of the promised money uh, to the Native Americans there. And again, 
what a twist. What a shock ending that would have been. Anyway, ultimately, both men did end up with massive collections of fossil specimens that would, you know, would, would take ages and ages to classify properly. And so in 1875, both Cope and Marsh decide to take a break from fieldwork and instead uh, spend time classifying and describing their finds. But after two years of a you know, relative stalemate in the Bone Wars here, in 1877, this came to an end. This changed when Marsh received a letter from a bloke named Arthur Lakes. Lakes was a teacher from Colorado. And while he was out hiking with a mate one time, he had discovered some great big dinosaur bones in the mountains near a town called Morrison. And after this letter, Marsh received a shipment of bones from Lakes. But again, if you remember before, I mentioned that Marsh was a little lazy and it cost him here quite dearly. Marsh took so long to respond that Lakes gave up on him and instead sent a second shipment of, uh, shipment of bones, but this time to Cope. Now, Cope, much more energetic, jumped at the chance and began to make preparations to take advantage of this new discovery. And I'll tell you what, it actually took Marsh hearing about what Cope was up to, hearing that his rival was on the move. Marsh finally got his ass into gear, sent an agent quick smart to Colorado and paid Lakes $100 to keep his findings secret. He also raised to publish something on this new treasure trove of bones and beat Cope to the punch. This meant that by the time that Cope was ready to publish, Marsh had already, you know, stolen the thunder, pulled the, pulled the rug out from under him and, and, and sailed very close to the wind, I'll tell you that, by, uh, by almost letting his rival get the better of him by, uh, you know, ignoring Lakes for so long. But ultimately, Lakes did side with Marsh and added insult to injury too by sending another letter to Cope asking him to forward the bones that he'd sent uh, to Cope, forward them on to Marsh, if you wouldn't mind. So Cope was, <laughs> Cope was taking it coming and going here. But then a second letter arrived from someone out west, this time for Cope. A bloke named O.W. Lucas got in touch to tell him of another rich fossil ground near Canyon City in Colorado and sent some samples out to him as well. Now, Cope was ecstatic because these bones were enormous. They were way bigger than lakes. And so it was a big get for him to have Canyon, this Canyon City uh, find uh, sent his way instead of to Marsh. And after finding about, out about this, about what uh, Cope had, uh, you know, had just been sort of handed to him here, Marsh, of course, did everything he could to sabotage Cope's efforts. Uh, he sent out agents to Canyon City to set up his own quarry. But O.W. Lucas had already secured the best sites and couldn't be bought off. Cope had run rings around Marsh here and struck a blow back after the lakes debacle and things now went from bad to worse for marsh the quarry that he'd set up near morrison uh, it collapsed and almost killed all the workers there and that was that for his fire uh, for his supply of, of new bones from the west whereas cope on the other hand right off you know writing papers uh, bloody describing great big new herbivores having a great time get that up your marsh your bloody dickhead you know check out all my new bones i'm getting here you can't have any of them but then a third letter arrived. A third letter came from the West, this time from Wyoming, uh, from two blokes calling themselves Harlow and Edwards, and they, again, they got in touch with, with Marsh rather than with Cope. They were working for the Union Pacific Railroad, which was being built through uh, remote Wyoming, and they said they'd come across these huge numbers of fossils out in an area near Como Bluff. And they also mentioned that other people had been snooping around in the area, seeming very interested indeed in these fossils. And Marsh, having learnt from the debacle with Lakes, he didn't make the same mistake twice. He's convinced that these snoops are in the employ of Cope. And so he sends a check off to Harlow and Edwards to buy their, si uh, buy their silence and buy their loyalty. But this caused a bit of a problem as Harlow and Edwards were unable to cash the check because their names weren't 
Harlow and Edwards after all. Their real names were actually William Harlow Reed and William Edwards Carlin. Uh, and it actually wasn't until Marsh's agents arrived at Como Bluffs before Marsh secured the site. He was able to buy off these two Williams here and uh, and secure their support in uh, in quarrying this, um, this Como Bluff site. Even then, however, the two Williams, they weren't happy with the deal. And one of them, Carlin, actually went out to Connecticut personally to renegotiate the deal with Marsh. But this didn't work. Marsh refused to budge on the monthly fee that he'd initially offered, and Carlin returned to Reed feeling pissed off and hard done by here. And this was the beginning of some very serious tension, not only between, uh, between obviously, there's Marsh and Cope at each other's throats, but now Marsh and his workers. Nonetheless, Carlin and Reed they sent train loads, train loads of bo- uh, of, uh, of bones back to uh, back to Connecticut, uh, including some dinosaur bones uh, from some of today's most famous dinosaurs. Uh, Allosaurus, Apatosaurus, and the mighty Stegosaurus were amongst those described by Marsh after the Como Bluff find. He was firing at all cylinders and putting Cope to shame. However. Carlin and Reed were not happy chappies. They were still resenting Marsh for giving them a better deal, Carlin in particular, and they began to undermine Marsh's interest in Wyoming. They leaked information about the fossil diggings to the local papers. They alerted Cope to the size and the scale of Marsh's quarries by doing this, and Cope, ever an opportunist, he sent in his own agents, dinosaur rustlers as they were called, uh, to sneak in under cover of darkness and steal fossils from Como Bluff. Cope also started making overtures to Marsh's workers, and in 1878, he managed to lure Carlin away from Marsh to work for him instead. Now, this was obviously a huge coup because Carlin was very familiar with uh, Como Bluff and all of all of Marsh's operations there. And Marsh retaliated by sending agents to sabotage Cope's efforts in Colorado, sending uh, stealing bones or, or destroying those that they were unable to steal. So Cope then ordered Carlin to sabotage his old worksite, which resulted in Carlin locking Reed out of the train station, forcing him to crate and load the bones onto the train in the the freezing cold outside, amongst all sorts of other hilarious pranks there. There are so many stories to have emerged in this period. Both men were engaged in a race to the bottom to prevent the other from, uh, you know, successfully harvesting all of these bones. Spying, theft, sabotage, bribery, they'd do anything. They filled in exhausted quarries, they destroyed uh, small or damaged fossils, rather than let the other get their hands on them and constantly tried to steal each other's workers from one another. There's even a story of a skirmish between Marsh and Cope's workers where they fought and threw stones at each other like bloody kids at a playground, mate. And this continued for 15 years. Both Cope and Marsh continued to dig up bones in Wyoming and Colorado, respectively, until they had more bones than they, than they knew what to do with. Cope actually ran out of storage space for all of his fossils, while people in the Peabody Museum back in Yale were working round the clock to bloody try and classify all these uh, all these stupid dinosaur bones. Literally, you know, tons and tons of the damn things, mate. And quite on top of all of this, all, you know, all the on top of all the actual science, all the digging and classification, and all the rest of it that's going on, at, you know, at, at the quarries and at the museums here, these two blokes are also, of course, doing everything that they can to ruin the other. Cope was writing a prodigious amount of scientific papers. He published so so much literature, uh, and the most voracious reader of all the stuff that Cope put out was, of course. Marsh. He poured over every single paper that Cope wrote and would publicly ridicule even the slightest mistake in any of them. And when Marsh made mistakes too, you better believe that Cope was all over them like white on rice. Marsh put the wrong skull on an apatosaurus one time 
and Cope absolutely dragged him for it. Brilliant, of course, after the old uh, Elasmosaurus debacle years ago, Cope was very happy to get his own back. And as the years passed and as they headed into the 1880s, the feud continued unabated. There was no sign of it getting any less intense between the two. Uh, and the fortunes of the two men waxed and waned at various points as well. Marsh got into bed with the, U- uh, the US Geological Survey at one point and made powerful government contacts, while Cope's financial situation declined after buying a, a scientific journal, the uh, the American Natural... Well, sorry... Uh, the whole thing. He bought the entire company, the, the, the American Naturalist, not just like you know one single copy. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't quite. He wasn't quite that badly off there. Uh, but this didn't. La- this didn't last. This situation here with Marsh on top, because Marsh proved to be very unpopular with his government colleagues. He was difficult to get along with. He didn't like sharing his findings. Even his employees didn't like him all that much because he was pretty lazy when it came to things like you know paying them. Uh, and this meant that in 1884, Cope rallied marvellously and pulled ahead when a congressional investigation into the U.S. Geological Survey was announced. And Cope did, despite you know, he's not he's not he's not involved in the investigation at all, but he did everything that he could to support it. He got in touch with old government contacts that he had to badmouth uh, Marsh. He uh, found disgruntled workers who had been in the pay of Marsh, who were you know willing to speak out uh, against him in public. And after the investigation, Cope doubled down. He just received a teaching position at the University of Pennsylvania, very nice, uh, and his finances as a result were back on the mend. And so he decided that the time was right, therefore, to unveil his magnum opus, something that he'd been working on for years and years. He went to the New York Herald, a newspaper, and brought with him a little journal that he'd kept for a long, long time. Now, while Marsh had you know, been very loudly and publicly ridiculing Cope for making mistakes and the like in all of his publications... Cope had been biding his time quietly and waiting for the right time to strike. And and in this journal of his, he had recorded every single misstep, error, mistake, misdeed that Marsh had committed over the last decade or more. And the newspaper published these as explosive revelations, including accusations that uh, Marsh had misused public funding as part of the USGS in the wake of this congressional investigation. And obviously, this did not look good for Marsh at all. His name is being dragged through the mud. He issued a fiery defence, which, of course, uh, thrust the feud even further into the public eye. People are loving the drama here. Never mind your bloody, you know, celeb gossip rags. All of a sudden, this, this the very public feud between these two scientists is making headlines here. Uh, but, you know, people are loving it. People are loving the drama to come out of the usually uh, placid world of the scientist. But I'll tell you who wasn't loving it. And that was other scientists. Uh, other scientists, they were cringing so hard at this feud that their teeth were shattering. You know, like when your mum starts arguing with the, uh, you know, with the supermarket cashier, all of these other scientists, they're so embarrassed to even be associated with these two feuding idiots. Cope and Marsh were not good for the image of the American scientist. They did a lot of damage to the, to the perception that the rest of the world had of this young country's scientific output. I mean, look, in many ways... These two were ahead of their time, you know, obnoxious Americans uh, arguing very publicly. It does, it does seem like the sort of conduct that's very on brand for the modern American. Uh, but all of this, uh, all this rivalry did at the time was make scientists around the world la- laugh behind their hands at, uh, at both Cope and Marsh and, and, and the US scientific community uh, in general. So it, it wasn't good, uh, again, for the nascent reputation of this young country here. Anyway... Both men, they continued to dig up bones for their respective quarries out west into the 1890s, and it was in this decade that once again their fortune shifted 
uh, further in Cope's favour. Again here, Marsh was subject to all sorts of new scrutiny after the New York Herald debacle, uh, and his personal reputation was heavily damaged. He was ultimately asked to resign from his government position while Cope continued to fire on all cylinders here. He was elected as president of the American Association for the Advancement of Scientists at the same time that Marsh had to step down as the chief of the Academy of Sciences. But the thing is, right, the thing is, I mean, never mind who's ahead in this war, because, you know, as these two are still trading blows, still vying for, for, for scientific supremacy, right? They've spent their entire lives just throwing mud at each other, and, and it's starting to add up. It's really starting to take its toll. By the mid-1890s, both men are in financial ruin. They've spent most of their lives fighting with each other. Marsh was forced to mortgage his house and ask for a stipend from Yale just to get by, while Cope had to sell some of his fossil collection just to stay afloat. And unfortunately as well, Cope also fell very ill in 1896. He contracted a gastrointestinal illness and began to self-medicate using, I'm not, I'm not very happy to say this, unfortunately, he began to medicate using morphine, belladonna, and formalin, which is basically just formaldehyde. And you won't be surprised to learn that this didn't do him much good. Now, if there were any poetic justice to this story, this here would be the point at which the two men finally overlooked a lifetime of differences, came together, embraced one another on Cope's deathbed, and forgave the other for a lifetime of bitter hatred. But no, of course not. No, I mean, of course that's not how it went. Just, I mean, no, there were, these two, are, they're, they're far too, they're, they're, they've got way too much invested in this feud. They're not going to let something like one of them dying get in the way of their, 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 their burning and intense hatred of the other one here. Just before he died, Cope doubled down and issued one final challenge to Marsh, right? Cope arranged to have his body donated to science and insisted that he have his cranial capacity measured and then challenged Marsh to do the same when he died. Now, this was at a point in history where many people believe brain size uh, to be linked to intelligence. And so Cope was determined to have one, you know, to, to, uh, to at least embarrass his rival one last time uh, with, with the size of his head. The rivalry, however, finally came to an end between, Mar uh, between Marsh and Cope with the death of Cope on the 12th of April, 1897, when he was just 56 years old. And Marsh, for his part, only outlived his rival by two years, dying on the 8th of March in 1899 at the age of 67. And as for the brain size challenge, Marsh refused to take Cope's bait and never had his cranial capacity measured. I don't know who comes off better in that exchange, but the final blow that Cope, uh, Cope tried to strike there ultimately didn't land. So, one final question remains for us to answer. Who won the Bone Wars? After a lifetime of bickering and squabbling and fighting and generally just doing anything and everything to destroy the other, was it Cope or was it Marsh who should finally be crowned the victor? Well, I think it's much more important. You know, it's, it's worth thinking about whether that question is even worth asking. The real victory, of course, is in the journey. It's in the competition. And of course, it's important to remember that we're all winners for taking... No, 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 no. It was Marsh. It was Marsh. It was 100% Marsh. Marsh definitely won. It's not even, it's not even close. 
you can just look at the scoreboard first of all, right? From a pure numbers perspective, Marsh creamed Cope. He discovered 80 new species to Cope's 56, and Marsh also discovered all the club bangers that we love today. Triceratops, Allosaurus, Diplodocus, Stegosaurus, so many of the absolute classics were discovered by Marsh. He also suggested that today's birds descended from dinosaurs, an idea that, you know, today has been largely upheld, so nice one there, Marsh. And finally, he was also instrumental in the creation of the Peabody Museum at Yale, which even to this very day is one of the biggest and one of the most important natural history museums in the world, filled to the brim with the specimens that he himself, Marsh himself, discovered and described. Cope, on the other hand, ugh, yeah, was on the wrong side of history in, uh, in, in more ways than one, not only scientifically but politically as well. I mentioned before that he was a founder of Neo-Lamarckism, which is an evolutionary theory that says that traits acquired within an organism's lifetime can be passed on to its offspring. Definitely got that one wrong. Oops. Uh, but uh, when you look at his political views, that's when things get, yeah, well, yeah, nah, because, uh, yeah. Look, uh, Cope was a huge and an unapologetic racist. Uh, some of his biggest hits included, <clears throat> if a race was not white, then it was inherently more ape-like, and of course the classic, the inferior Negro should go back to Africa. Some of the uh, choice quotations from Cope there. Uh, even through the cultural lens of the late 19th century, this is pretty nasty stuff, but wait... There's more because he was also super sexist too, opposing women's suffrage and believing the, uh, uh, you know, the man to be the protector of the woman. Uh, look, you've still got to remember that all this was well over a century ago, but still, come on, cope, mate, lift your game. What's all this nonsense about? You know, you're supposed to be a man of science. But ultimately, look, no matter how you slice it, uh, whether you look at it through a, a historical, a cultural, a political, or you know, perhaps most significantly, a scientific lens. It's definitely Marsh who emerges victorious uh, in, in the wake of the Bone Wars. He just did more. He, he discovered, named, described, and, and, and most importantly, preserved more specimens than, uh, than his rival and uh, just had a greater impact, a greater legacy. He was right about more things. He was on the right, the right side of more things uh, than, than Cope was. And so ultimately, the victory does go to Marsh there. But look, with all the personal animosity aside... The Bone Wars was, it definitely had an enormous impact on the nascent science of paleontology. Before Cope and Marsh got stuck into each other, only nine species of North American dinosaur had been named, and so their impact on North American paleontology, North American natural science there, is just, is, is too big to be understated. By the time they were both dead, paleontology was a well-established and booming science in North America, even if its reputation, you know, had taken a bit of a beating because of their squabbling. But in the end, the clear winner of the Bone Wars was Marsh. GG, easy, no re. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Bone Wars. I do hope you enjoyed hearing it just as much as I enjoyed researching it. And thanks once again 
uh, to Shane Wong for the excellent suggestion. If you want to uh, to do the same thing as Shane and send in a suggestion, please do. You can go to halfhousehistory.net or indeed halfhousehistory.com and you can find the contact form there. In addition to links to old episodes, you can download them all there for free, of course, or subscribe on iTunes or Android or, or Spotify. Leave me a review if you've got a second that, that you'd be doing me a big favour there. Uh, and if you want to buy some Half House History swag, please do so. Uh, you can go to uh, uh, halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com. Uh, or if you want to support the show financially on Patreon, patreon.com slash History. Thank you so much to all the exalted Patreons still chucking me cash left, right and centre. Gain access to uh, uncut episodes or, uh, uh, you know, other behind the scenes stuff, show notes or early uh, access to episodes before, they, before they're released, uh, you know, at the, at the usual time on a Sunday. Uh, but that's just about that. Thanks for tuning in. Please tell your friends and I'll see you back here next week for more Half Hours History. Until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit scientist Praying Mantis Pro wants to know, how did the thesaurus survive the dinosaur extinction? <laughs> <laughs>